Well, today we are finishing up our series on Man Up in 1 Kings. Then we're going to jump into another section of 1 Kings dealing with Elijah and how he handles all kinds of uh, discouragement and depression and how he handles uh, different pressures. But as we began this series months ago, we looked at a definition of leadership or manning up. The definition is someone who mans up or steps up is someone who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward. And today we're going to look at temptation. And ultimately temptation is about expecting the greater reward and taking the long-term benefit over the short-term sacrifice. Or taking the long-term benefit over the short-term pleasure of sin that comes our way. So what you and I need to realize is that we're being hunted. You are right now being hunted. I am right now being hunted. There's forces at work to destroy you right now. All around you in the air, there's forces at work in your heart. There's forces in the world that are trying to take away and destroy the things you care about most. Your faith. Your family. Your finances. Your future. There are forces at work to destroy that. And those forces, if gone unchecked, will take away the things you care about. That's exactly what happens to Solomon today. So we need to know those strategies and come against those strategies before they undo us. There was a Puritan minister, 1800s, he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He lays out about 30 of these, but I'll just give you five. Five ways in which forces and strategies are used against us to undo the things we care about. He says one of the strategies of temptation is to show you the bait, but hide the hook. Oh, this is going to be so good. There's no consequences. Nobody will get hurt. Not a big deal. But think how much better your life will be, at least in the short term. Show the bait, hide the hook. The second strategy, which I find in myself often, is rationalizing sin as virtue. What does that look like? I'm not a complainer. I'm just very discerning. I'm not judgmental. I just tell it how it is. I'm not unthankful. I'm just good at problem solving. I'm not fearful. I I just am careful. And instead of repenting, or seeing these potential strongholds in our life as what they are, we instead rationalize them and we're actually proud of the very thing that is being used to undermine us. The next one is overstressing the mercy of God. Oh, it's not a big deal. Jesus died for that. We, don't be so legalistic. Don't make such a big deal about that. Come on, it's all taken at the cross. And we overstress the mercy of God to the point at which we don't take disobedience seriously. And that takes us down a path. Another one I see is bitterness over suffering. I tell you, having been in ministry for 20 plus years now, I have noticed that those who end up making some of the most unwise decision and going to some of the most difficult places, it begins with self-pity. Because when you begin bitter at God or bitter at life or what it's passed on to you, that will create an environment in your heart that you will be able to talk yourself into anything. Because life's been so hard on me, God's been so hard on me, I deserve this, whatever the this is. The chance to complain, an inappropriate relationship, inappropriate spending, but it begins with this strategy. 
Another one I see in myself is comparing one part of my life to another. Here's what it looks like. Well, sure, I fudge the truth a little bit, but you know, I'm very generous with my money. Well, sure, I can be angry and sure, I can be in sort of fits of rage and I don't have much patience. But you know what? I really do love my time of worship. Or it's the classy mafia boss, you know. Sure, I kill people, but I love my mama. One part of your life that's going well somehow makes up for having to deal with seriously the other areas that you're out of alignment. And that's what we're going to see in Solomon's life as well. And the principle is this. We behave our way away from God. That we start close with God and then we take a step away. We say, well, you know what, I just, I just haven't had time. We get too busy. And as we get too busy, we don't feel as close to God anymore. And He's no longer as much of a priority. And, or maybe we go up to college and we went up to college and you know, we didn't find a church for the first month, first semester, first year. It's been about four years since you've been at school. Four years since you've been you know, with God. You know, He just doesn't seem as relevant as He used to be. It doesn't seem like it really has anything to do with my life. I mean, I've been doing fine for the last four years without it. Or maybe you get into a relationship and, you know, your marriage isn't everything you hoped it would be a few years in, a few decades in even. And you say, well, you know what? Sure, I'm flirting with this other person. It's my fitness trainer. It's my other person. But, but you know what? Don't be so legalistic. I'm not sure God really cares about that kind of stuff. I'm not really sure God's even involved in life anymore. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I might call myself, I don't know, a deist maybe. Then you pick up a Richard Dawkins quote that says that smart people think that God doesn't really exist anyway. And you go, yeah, I'm a smart person. And you didn't philosophize your way away from God. You didn't think your way away from God. You behaved your way away from God. And now you wonder why God seems irrelevant. You wonder why he seems like you're disconnected. You behaved your way away from God. And God is waiting faithfully saying, come on back. I want to be in relationship with you, with friendship with you. And if we want to keep the tragedy of behaving our way away from God from happening in our life, we can learn lessons from Solomon's. Five no's, five things we've got to know if we want to save our faith, our family, our future, and even some finances as well. The first no is we need to know our compromises. In other words, there is something that you're going to compromise uniquely that's different from mine. That there's a unique way in which you are wired, there's a unique way in which you are temptable, that you need to understand that so you don't head down that path. Look at Solomon's compromises. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. That was his unique area of compromise. As well as the daughter, as well as, well, let's, let's throw in the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, as well as the women of the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and the Edomites, and the Sidonites, and the Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry. Let me pause there. You know, over years, people have used this kind of verse to say that God was against interracial marriage. Nonsense. Read the context. He's talking about marrying folks with a different value system. Do not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Why? Because they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. That was the issue. See, Solomon uniquely would compromise by marrying people who have different gods because his inner compromise was he wanted more power, he wanted more territory, and he wanted more security. And in his desire for more security, more expansion, to, to look back at the grandiose plan of his life, he made compromises to get there. How much? Well, keep going. 
he ends up, even though God told him specifically not to do this, he now not only has done it, he seared his conscience to hear it, he now clings to the very things God said not to do in love. And he had you know, 700 wives. I always say you stop at 100. That's me. But this is what happens with sin. You're never satisfied. It's never enough. Never enough in your savings. There's never enough in your security. You've never gotten something big enough. Your numbers are never big enough. There's always something more. Because it wasn't just 700 wives either. He goes on. He's not satisfied with his princesses or his 300 concubines. And his wives, surprise, turned away his heart. I think he's been warned about that. And it was so that when Solomon was old, that, here it is again, his wives turned his heart after their gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And as you look at these key phrases, what he loved, the many, as well as, you begin to see a pattern of compromise that you and I need to know about and be careful about. Stage one, our emotions lean toward the forbidden. Even before we do it, they just lean toward it. We love things. We're emotionally drawn to things. We, we covet things that God says, hey, it does, it's not going to deliver on what you think it is. But our emotions lean toward that, stage one. Stage two, we need more of the forbidden to be satisfied. We're going after that initial hit. We need more and more of whatever that is to satisfy us. Three, we sear our conscience. Well, as well as, well, God didn't get too mad last time. I guess he won't get mad if I do it again. And we lose the ability to even discern what's right and wrong. We embrace rebellion. We do the very thing God said you shall not do. We ignore warnings. We have friends in our life who say, hey, are you sure? I, I saw how you handled yourself in that meeting. Are you sure things are going well? You really came down hard on that guy. Oh, come on. We push away feedback. Now, I've noticed how you've been interacting with that employee. It seems like you're getting a little flirtatious. Are you aware you're coming across that way? Oh, come on. It's, there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Move along. We ignore the warnings of our friends. We, we ignore the warnings of our, of our parents. We ignore the warnings of our God. And all along the way, we're behaving our way away from God. To the point at which we cling to the very thing that's destroying us. I remember coming across some stages like this uh, early on in my marriage. I think I've been married about three years. In a book called The Temptations Men Face, they lay out 12 stages to an affair. And there's no physical touch until like stage nine. Stage one is you're leaning away from your marriage. Stage two, you just notice someone of the opposite sex who has a strength or a quality that your spouse doesn't have. And it continued. And as I was looking at that list, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm at stage two. I was leaning away from my marriage during that season. Not, not a lot, just sort of, boy, this isn't everything I hoped for. I began to notice this one other person in particular who had a quality that wasn't my, my wife's strength. And I went, wow, man, thank you for that list. I've got to catch myself now. I'm so glad to catch myself at stage two, not stage three or four or five or six. And you need to catch ourselves to know our compromises, to catch ourselves before we end up in trouble, before we get down the road too far. Gordon MacDonald wrote a book called Ordering Your Private World. It was all about looking at your inner lives and your inner compromises and and he would say that the one area that he was not going to compromise was in his relationships. 
It's the one area he invested in his marriage. He made that a priority. That's the one area he knew that was strong enough that nobody could get in. And yet a few years later, a public scandal came out that he'd had an affair. He tells the story in 1987 as an example of how we need to look at not only our weaknesses, but our strengths as possible vulnerable spots. Matthias Russ, in 1987, was a German student. I think he was 19. And he decided to see if he could land an airplane in Moscow Square. It was the most protected, it was the most uh, watched and guarded airspace in the world by the communist government. So he gets into a single-engine plane, leaves from Denmark, bounces around a little bit, and literally does a flyby Moscow Square, lands right in the middle... And steps out, instead of having any kind of embarrassment as the, the guards and police are coming up, he's signing autographs that he had made it through the air defense system. Humiliated the communist government, fired multiple generals who allowed this to happen. And he realized that that's what happens with us. That sometimes the area we think is strongest, it just takes one little compromise, one little habit, one little area to sneak in and to land right in what we thought was the most protected airspace in our life. So that's the first one. Know your compromises. Two, we need to know our, our unique temptations. Solomon had particular ones. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. He also went after Milcom. And look how God feels about this guy. The abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow, fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, another goddess, the abomination of Moab on the hill that is the east of Jerusalem. And he went after Moloch, the abomination of the people of Amnon. And he did not likewise, and he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now, usually the worship of these gods went together. And again, you begin to see a pattern of these specific temptations that led him to ultimate destruction of his kingdom and his family. And his legacy. Let me just explain three of them. And you begin to see a pattern forming of your unique and my unique temptations. The first one is Ashtoreth. It was the goddess of war and the goddess of sensuality. That usually our path of temptation begins with lusting. It might be sexual lust or it might be a coveting kind of lust. We lust after things we don't have. We lust after things we deserve. And we allow ourselves... To go after, in his case, the god of war was all about accumulation, it was about control, it was about power, it was about bigger and bigger and bigger. That was his unique temptation. And that particular temptation led to the worship of Chamash. In Chamash is what happens, because you so want status, you so want fame, you so want power, you so want to have a bigger whatever it is, or a better whatever it is, you begin to sacrifice that which is good and innocent for this new habit. It's an alcohol habit. It's a drug habit. It's a pornography habit. It's a spending habit. And the things you said you cared about, your marriage, your kids, your family, your finances, your future, your faith, begin to be sacrificed on the altar of what you really have given your life to. And you would say, well, sure, sure, I want to prioritize my marriage, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. And you start having once-in-a-lifetime deals every month. And you wonder why you're sacrificing your marriage. You start saying, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I haven't spent much time with the kids in the last month year, decade, but, but the extra money I'm making for, for, for what I'm worshiping, we, we do have some great vacations together. And you begin to sacrifice 
the things that you once told yourself you'd prioritize. See, here's what would happen with Chamash. If you look at the picture, picture there, the people would come up to the back. There's a brass god. They would dump fire and wood, and he would be heated up. And this giant brass statue would just be fiery hot. And his brass arms are literally like a stove. And if you can imagine this, this is Solomon who is leading the people of God in worship at the temple on one day and then heads over to the worship of Chamash the next. You would take your children, your infants, your elementary children, you would carry them up and set them in the arms of Chamash in these scalding, hot brass arms and you would burn them alive as they screamed. And suddenly you were sacrificing that which is good and innocent for the worship of this God. You say, what primitive people who would do that? Yet we do the same thing. We sacrifice that which we said was good and important. We don't maybe do it as blatant, but it's just as blatant. But in order to not hear the cries of your, your kids or your neighbor's kids, what you would do is you would add in the worship of Moloch. And all of a sudden there'd be loud music playing to drown out the screams. I can't hear the screams of the consequences. I can't hear the screams of the problem because I'm so enjoying the music. I'm so enjoying the festivities. And that's what happens. You begin to ignore the consequences of the things that are obvious right in front of you because of the music of what you're experiencing, the pleasures of what you're feeling. And I'm not judging anyone. I'm saying I've done it too. This is the pattern of how temptation works. Which is why we got to know our compromises and know our temptations so we don't end up headed down this path. That might be why Paul says it this way. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the strategies, the schemes of the devil that are individually aimed to take you down, to take me down. I know one of mine. When I am tired, when I feel unappreciated, and when it's late at night... I am the most temptable. So when I find myself in those situations, I have to go, whoa, whoa, well, this is it. This is that moment. I'm going to double time back to God. Double time back to take every thought captive. Double time to move away from situations. These are the unique spots that I am vulnerable. And by knowing that, I can step away from temptation rather than being sucked into temptation. So know your compromises, your individual ones. Know your temptations. But also, know your relational status with God. <laughs> I find that when I get into temptation, God and I haven't been hanging out very often lately. Same thing with Solomon. The Lord is angry at Solomon, and he doesn't even know it. Because, why is he angry? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him about this very thing. He would warned him, this is the very thing that kings do. Don't do this thing. That he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this, you've not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you. I'm going to tear the kingdom from you, and I'm going to give it to your servants. Nevertheless, I'm going to do it not in your days for the sake of your father David, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of your servant David, my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. He doesn't even know God's angry at him. And so I just ask you, as you think about the areas you're tempted, the areas that you find yourself struggling with or just feeling distance from God, 
how are you doing with God these days? How's your friendship with God? When's the last time you really talked to God and poured your heart out to Him in prayer? When's the last time you really had a personal quiet time with God in your Word? Has it been a few hours? A few days? Has it even been weeks? Months? Would you know if God was disappointed with the decisions you're making? Would you know if God was warning you and saying, Oh, be careful. Do you even know if God misses you right now? See, we need to pause sometimes in our busyness and say, Well, I need to check. I need to know where I'm at with God these days. Allow His grace to come against accusations and condemnation in my life so I'm drawn near to Him. Let His wisdom come and warn me about the decisions I'm making and the temptations I'm facing. But we need to know where we're at with God. The next thing we need to know, and one of the great things about temptation, is it tries to deny consequences. And we need to know there are consequences to what we do. And God will often raise up adversaries. He'll raise up circumstances in your life to get your attention. Because often when we come up against something bigger than ourselves, we're like, oh my goodness, I can't handle this. And we finally run back to God. There are consequences to decisions. And so the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Adam. And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon the son of Elida, who has fled from his lord. And this guy becomes an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon. As if God's got this, this light on the dashboard. There's an adversary. Remember I told you to take care of the adversaries? You've got adversaries. Maybe you need to come talk to me. Maybe we need to check in. Maybe you're not on the right path. But he doesn't. And then this guy abhorred Israel and he reigned over Syria. There's a passage in, in Romans that tells us that if we push God away, he's a gentleman. He'll say, OK, if you don't want my protection, OK, if you don't want me to get involved, I'll give you over to that addiction. I'll give you over to that habit. Go see if it really satisfies. And when you're done, come on back. The phrase is used, give over, in Romans 1. God gives us over to the lusts of our heart. He gives us over to our vile passions. He'll even give us over to our debased mind, our, our poor thinking, our stinking thinking, our, our lies. He'll give us over to that. And then we finally feel the pain. We finally feel the adversarial idea of being out of God's presence. And then we're like, oh, God, will you have me back? And he uses adversaries to draw us back to him. Now, if you were God or if I was God... Maybe the result of this whole thing is, if I was God, I'd be like, you know what, Solomon, to heck with you. I appeared to you twice. I helped you write like several books about wisdom that you're not following. You know what? I'm done. And yet what's so powerful about the God of not only the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament, is God is so merciful. He is so kind. And even as you're going down the wrong path, even as he's lovingly allowing you to face the consequences of bad decisions, he hasn't turned his back on you. He's walking with you saying, here's still, I want to be generous. I still want to keep my word. I still want to offer you grace. I still want to offer you mercy. I still want you back. We see that next part of the verse. And what draws us back to God is his grace and his mercy. See, it happened at that time. When Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment. And the two were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it in twelve pieces. <laughs> and he lays out these twelve pieces and says, God is going to give you, Jeroboam, 
ten of these, but he's going to continue to give two to Solomon. For the God of Israel said, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen. And look at this. Solomon doesn't deserve any tribes. Look what he's doing with Chemosh. He doesn't deserve any grace. He doesn't deserve any mercy. He doesn't deserve any more chances. And yet God so graciously says, even though Solomon doesn't keep his word, I'm still going to keep mine. Even though Solomon is faithless, I'm still faithful. Even though he didn't choose me, I still choose him. And again, you just see the heart of God flowing in here saying, I want to woo him back. I want to bring him back. I want to love him back. And the mercy of God is this incredible God who loves us and watches over us. And you even hear his heart break as he says, I'm still going to be generous to him, even though they've forsaken me and worship these horrific abomination of God's. And even though they have not walked in my ways, to do what is right in my eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. And what God is saying, I want him back, but he just has behaved his way away from me. But here's the great news. Here's the great news for all of us, whether we're one step away or ten steps away. Though we behave our way away from God, we can always crave our way back to God. You might say, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. I can never come true with the facts. I can never get out of this. Oh, it's such a mess I've made of things. Oh, my goodness. I just, if I told the truth to my spouse, if I told the truth to my company, God, what would I, oh, I, I, I can't even face up to all the lies I've told. And God says, just crave your way back to me. And we'll work out together. Just crave what God, I need you. I need you more than ever. I need you to help. I need you to fix. I need you to forgive. I need you to lead. God, I just need you. And God says, now we're talking. Together we'll get through this. Together we'll work around this. Just crave your way back to me. And so I think the application for us is this. To know what you need to know. Of those five no's, do you know? Pick one. Do you know your unique compromise? To write down, this is my unique compromise based on my temperament and my personality. This is the unique way I'd bring myself down. Do you, maybe your one is your temptation. I know my unique temptation is the, the building, the expanding, and the ambition. Or mine uniquely is sexual uh, inappropriate feelings. Or my unique thing is, is coveting. Or my unique thing is, is gossiping. Maybe the no you want to write down. You want to say, I want to commit to God keeping a knowledge of where you and I are today. To checking in. Man, God, i just been ignoring you a lot lately. Maybe the unique no you want to write down is stop lying to yourself that it won't hurt anyone. This is hurting someone. This will hurt someone. Or maybe you, you've got the it's going to hurt people stuff down. And maybe the unique no you need to have today is I can know there's a God who lets me turn back. I can know a God who has not given up. I've known a God who he may take away ten tribes, but he still gives me one or two because he's let me know that he still wants to woo me and to connect with me. That's the God of grace. It's culminated in Jesus Christ. And if we will know what we need to know, and if we will begin to track with this and crave our way back to God, we can avoid so much pain. So much pain. 
for ourselves and others. We can protect the things we love the most. Our family. Our finances. Our faith and our future. As we find something so powerful. I love what it says in the verse here. Notice this. Why is God so gracious? However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because. Okay, because of what? Because I made him ruler. Because I chose him. Because my promises are based on my character. Because I made him ruler over all the days of his life and I keep my word. But also for the sake of, I love this, my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments. And part of God's graciousness, he was only going to give him one kingdom, but he gives him two because of what his father had done. And I love the grace of God here that Solomon made some pretty bad mistakes too. I mean, he had affairs, he killed people, I mean, horrible stuff. And yet when he did that, he craved his way back to God. And God said, because of what David did, despite his behaving his way away, when he craved his way back, I am going to reward future generations because of what a father did. And that means for you and I, the stakes are high. Whatever the companies we lead, whatever the families we lead, whatever people we influence, that our decisions can bless other people generations in the future. That what David did was used by God to bless someone who didn't deserve it. And that's why we got to man up. Because God's going to use us to impact the world by setting, coming against strongholds and setting up patterns into the future. But in order to do that, we've got to take our secrets seriously. So I want you to see this quick video clip as maybe a reminder to deal with our secrets before they destroy the things we care about most. Let's watch. So many people get hurt because of some secret we have in our heart. Now, that secret might be worry. It might be a habit. It might be lust. There's all kinds of ways in which sometimes it's bitterness. The bitterness is we say, I'm holding on to a grudge, and, and it's not going to hurt anybody. It's just my own little thing. It's a secret bank account. It's ego. It's greed. There's something in our life that we can manage right now. It's small enough that we can manage it. And we say, I'm not hurting anybody. It's not going to hurt anybody else. It's just me. It's not a big deal. Now, what happens? Life gets complicated. And all of a sudden, we get more relationships, more experiences, more challenges come into our life. And as those challenges come into our life, this habit that we could once monitor, that we could once manage, starts to get out of control. So what do we do? We bury it. We bury this habit deep, deep down where nobody knows what we struggle with. Nobody knows this is something we're even dealing with. We don't talk to people about it because we don't intend to get hurt. It's not that big a deal. So we bury it in our lives. And we cover it with a thousand decisions. And we never expected. We never expected it to blow up. We never expected all the other people to get hurt. See, many of us, we've been on the receiving end of one of these explosions. The pastor who had the affair... And now many of our friends haven't been back to church in 20 years. It's our friend who started getting involved in drugs. And then he needed a bigger and bigger hit. And now there's all this pain and all this carnage all over life. And the whole time the person was headed in this direction, they buried the secret so deep. And they said, it's not going to be that big a deal. But given the right time, 
and given the right pressure, our secrets come out. Our secrets explode. And not only do they hurt us, they hurt the people we care about the most. I just want to give us a moment to just have a moment of agreeing or confession with God to say, God, I want to get right with you before the explosion. Let's pray. Father, we just give your Holy Spirit permission to move in this place, to put your finger in areas of our heart, and tell us to stop clinging to it. Maybe what you want to say to God right now is, I, I repent or I confess. And tell him what that is. That thing you know he's been touching all, all morning on your heart. And say, God, I need your forgiveness. And you say, God, I need your leadership in this area of my life more than ever. God, I commit to crave you in a way I never have before. And thank you for your grace. And thank you for your mercy. For they are new every morning. New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God, thank you that you are a great and loving God. And we thank you that you work with broken people. You, you work with traitorous people. You work with rebellious people like me. God, lead us into the life and the life more abundant. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today.